Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In today's episode, Team Hoyt, Yes You Can. We will be speaking with brothers Rick and Russ Hoyt. Rick, who was born with cerebral palsy, grew up in a loving family where he was treated no differently than his two brothers, Rob and Russ. When he was 16 years old, Rick approached his dad, Dick, and asked him if they could enter a race together to benefit an athlete at his school who'd become paralyzed. Rick wanted to demonstrate that life could be lived fully, despite a person's disability. Rick's dad agreed, and from that point on, father and son became known as Team Hoyt, which competed in over 1,100 endurance events such as 5Ks, marathons, triathlons, and Ironman competitions. Rick and his brother Russ will tell stories about their family, Team Hoyt's racing career, and the Hoyt Foundation, a nonprofit organization founded to help disabled young people through inclusion in all facets of daily life. I'd now like to welcome Rick and Russ Hoyt to our show. Welcome, guys. Thank you for having us. We're happy to be here. Terrific. I'd first like to start off by saying that I was very sorry to hear about the passing of your dad, Dick Hoyt, back in March of this year. I'm very sorry to hear that. I'm sure it's a rough loss for your family. It is. We appreciate you saying that. And we were surprised dad went when he did, but he went peacefully. So we were we can, you know, we, we have nice thoughts about that. Just an incredible man. I've been watching some interviews that he gave and what a strong, determined man he was. Absolutely. Yeah. Russ, before we get further into your family story, can you tell us about Rick's disability and how he communicates generally and how he'll be responding to the questions I've sent to him ahead of time? Sure. When Rick was born, the umbilical cord was actually wrapped around his neck and it caused a lack of oxygen, which caused brain damage. And the part of his brain that was damaged is the cerebellum. And when that happens, a disability develops called cerebral palsy. And what it does is it affects his motor skills, but not his intellectual skills. So he can't control the movement in his arms or legs. He can't control how his tongue moves. Um, so he can't speak, he can't feed himself, dress himself. He needs help with all the physical aspects of his life. But intellectually, he hasn't been affected at all. So it's actually a, a pretty frustrating disability for him because he has all of these thoughts and he has actually graduated from Boston University and done all these things. And it's just, a, it's a slow process for him because of how he communicates. And the way that he communicates is he uses a computer that has a scanning mechanism. And what the scan does is it'll start at a row of letters. So the first row of letters, there'll be eight letters. And if he wants a letter from the third row, he has to wait for that scan to go first row, second row. He clicks it a third row, clicks a head switch that's attached to his wheelchair on the third row. And then it'll go across one letter at a time. So if it's the letter E and if it's the fifth letter in on the third row, he has to wait for that, get the third row, hit a click, and then wait for it to scan across to the fifth spot, clicks it again, and then the letter E will come up into what he's spelling and trying to communicate. That's why we really do appreciate you sending him the questions ahead of time, because it takes so much time to type out the message. 
And then the computer has the capacity to actually read what he's written. So there's a computerized voice that ends up reading the message that he's written. And that's how he's responded to the questions and participated in the interview. Oh, thank you very much for that clarification, Russ. Sure. So Russ, can you tell us where you were both born and raised? Yep. We were, uh, we were born in North Reading, Massachusetts. We were raised there for part of the time. Dad was in the military, so we did move quite a bit. When I was about three, we went to Texas for six months because dad was in military training school, came back to North Reading. And then about three years later, he was transferred to Otis Air Force Base on Cape Cod. We had this beautiful house in Falmouth on one of the Finger Lakes. We were a five-minute walk from all the Falmouth beaches, and Dad was promised a 10-year post. So one year later, we were gone uh, and moved to Westfield, Massachusetts, where we spent most of our formative years. Uh, Rick, Rob, and I all graduated from Westfield High School. Then Dad actually was transferred from Westfield to Newton, so they moved to a little town called Holland, Massachusetts, out in the center of the state. My dad actually lived there for the past almost 40 years, and my dad and mom were there together until they got divorced, and mom passed about 10 years ago. So dad's been there basically ever since just after they started racing. Wow. So you really moved around quite a bit. Was that hard as far as making friends and keeping friends and having to move away and stuff like that? Well, it wasn't real hard to make friends because we were the type of people that sort of immediately connected and found people that would be willing to be accepting of our family. We weren't very tolerant of people who didn't think Rick fit in. So we would move on quickly if somebody didn't seem to have an ability to connect to Rick. That was one of the requirements. I think it was harder leaving friends and having people that it was hard to stay connected with. That was probably harder for us. Yeah. But then for the last 40 years, though, there was a, a place that you could call home. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it was a beautiful home on a lake. So that didn't make it hurt too much either. I bet. What do you know, Russ, about your family roots? So my father is one of 10 and my mother is one of three. My dad's parents, Alfred and Anna, I know that my father's father was born from Herbert Hoyt, who actually one of my brother's names is Herbert. Mm -hmm. And he was married to Mamie and it was Thompson Hoyt. So there's some connection there. We do believe that the roots can be traced directly back to England. Uh, my uncle Jason, my father's youngest brother, has actually done some extensive research on our family and he shared it with us. He can connect our roots directly back to England. I don't have any facts on my mother's side, but my mother claimed passionately throughout her entire life that our roots go all the way back to Pocahontas. But I have no proof of that fact. Ah, well, that's that's interesting. Maybe someday you'll be able to sit down and go through all the old genealogy papers and find that you're actually descended from Pocahontas. Yeah, it would be pretty cool. So, Rusk, can you tell us something about your mom and dad? Like, where did they meet? They actually were high school sweethearts. They met at North Reading High. They were the class couple their senior year. And we actually pulled out a, a, an old yearbook. And there's a quote in the yearbook. It says, Richie and Judy like coffee and tea. One without the other you rarely will see. And it was 
storybook stuff. She was the head cheerleader. He was captain of the football team. They were together. Uh, my father wrote in his yearbook, his best memories were going to school with Judy. Oh, that's a nice, a nice thing to have. That's terrific. You mentioned a little bit about your dad's military service. Can you tell us some more about your dad's personality and his character and what kind of occupation did he have? Uh, so dad was a Mason first. So he built brick chimneys. And there's actually a funny story with that because our first home in North Reading, my dad was actually building the chimney on that house. And my brother, Rick, he actually had him hauled up on the scaffolding trying to help. And my father's brother, Herbie, was on the ground below. They knocked off a pallet of bricks and all the bricks fell all around Herbie. Not a single brick hit him. Uh, So that was just lucky. But that was the type of guy my father was like he would go up and build a brick chimney. And if he was going up to do it and Rick wanted to be there, Rick would get put in a sling and a harness and get pulled up on the side of a house and be there working with his dad pointing out everything he did wrong and every brick that was crooked. Right, Rick. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, his military career, he um, joined the army national guard and actually worked in Reading mass at that time, which was the Nike missile sites. After about three or four years in the military, he did transfer out of the army national guard into the air national guard. He was actually hoping to become a pilot, but, the age at which he transferred, it was too late to start flight school. So they would not let him become a pilot, but he did have a long distinguished military career. And towards the end of his career, he actually ended up being the fitness officer at the base, which probably doesn't surprise anybody to hear. No, not at all. I mean, he he must've been a type of guy that uh, could quickly get back into shape if he indeed was even out of shape at any point. Well, when Rick tells you a little bit about their first race, he can tell you dad was not a runner at the time when racing began. He was running maybe a mile or two a week just to try and keep himself in shape. Running was something that he sort of taught himself. And when they started doing triathlons together, what was even funnier was trying to see my father swim because when he was in high school, they used to call him the rock and they did for a reason because he got in the water and he sank. He could not swim. Rob and I were both competitive swimmers when we were young because my mom was a swim instructor and taught us how to swim from an early age. But dad had to teach himself to become a runner and become a swimmer. The pictures I've seen of your dad in the interviews, he looks like a really big, strong guy. He's a very strong guy, very muscular, but not real big, like five, 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 six, actually. It's kind of funny when people meet him in person, they're like, wow, you look much bigger on TV. (laughs) Yeah, that happens sometimes, right? So what about yeah. uh, his occupation? You said he was a Mason. Was he in, in the military? You, did he have hobbies before he started with you, Rick, and all the competitions and things like that? Did he have any other hobbies? He wasn't really the hobby type of guy. He was more work and then come home from work and find something to do around the house that needed to be fixed. Like we had a wood stove and he would go out into the woods behind our house and chop all the wood that we needed for it. Take an axe, fell a tree, chop it up, split it, and have all the firewood for our home for the winter. He was constantly doing something, but I don't think it would be anything you could call a hobby. Got it. What about your dad's character and personality? What can you tell me about him? He was definitely something he would be described as, as quiet, had a very subtle sense of humor, 
he would really enjoy stuff and, you know, laugh hard at stuff. And, but he wasn't a loud guy or one to get up and like, you know, tell a joke to make people laugh. It's kind of funny because later in life, after he retired from the military and when he and Rick's uh, racing career really took off, he became a public speaker, which I got to tell you from our early memories of him, it would have been the last thing that I would have expected him to do is get in front of a crowd and tell their story. But he was just so passionate about it and so driven by it that again, it was something he taught himself how to do. It just sounds like a really amazing guy. What about your mom, Judy Hoyt? Tell us about your mom. What was she like? What did she do? And what was her educational background? So when mom graduated from high school, she actually went to secretarial school to learn how to type. And she was going to you know, become a secretary. And when Rick was born, sort of that whole future changed for her. Her projection of who she became changed completely because she became Rick's advocate and Rick's voice. And when people said things like, Rick can't go to public school, she said, well, yes, he can. And we're going to figure out a way to do it. And she actually became so passionate and prominent of a voice that she got the first ever public education law written in Massachusetts, Chapter 766 was the first, Massachusetts is the first state to ever have a law stating that students with disabilities have to be educated alongside their typically developing non-disabled peers. And she actually got that law passed. My brother Rob tells stories of remembering hiding under Silvio Conti's desk, who was a congressman at the time, because they were there so long because mom wouldn't let him leave until he agreed to have the law written and changed. So Rob would go and play under his desk because mom was going to stay there until he was convinced that what she was telling him was right. (laughs) She was going to be a fixture in the office. Absolutely. Then later in life, she actually got her master's degree at the University of Massachusetts. They had University Without Walls, and she actually got her degree in human services. And then she started a human service agency called ASHES. It was the Association for the Support of Human Services. And that agency's sort of jewel was the first ever summer camp that supported children both with and without disabilities. So basically what she did is she created a camp where her three sons could go to summer camp together. And the joke in our house was her real motivation was just to get the three of us out of the house. (laughs) I bet. Three boys. I can imagine what's going on in your house. Did anything ever get broken in your house? Uh, did anything not get broken in our house is probably an easier question to answer. Uh, we used to have these yellow chairs that would spin and we would actually play football. So we would give Rick a football and then Rob and I would run and hit the chairs like blockers and then go back and push Rick's wheelchair. Like he scored a touchdown going through the chairs. So they did not last too long at all. I wouldn't think so. Did your mother say, this is why we can't have nice things? Oh, all the time. All the time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, this is a great segue into my next question, Russ. What are some of your earliest family memories growing up? You've already started to tell us a few things, but what do you remember about, uh, you know, the three of you and your mom and dad? We used to camp a lot when we were kids. We had a tow-behind trailer that dad would drive to the campgrounds. And one of the vivid memories I have, because it happened several times, is Now, my mom was a swim instructor, so Rob and I could both swim basically from the time we could walk. So when I was uh, probably a year, year and a half old, Rob was about five and Rick was probably eight. We would 
pull into a campground. Mom and dad would say, you guys go to the pool. We're setting up the campsite. So here would be Rob pushing Rick's wheelchair down to the pool. He would unbuckle Rick, throw him in the pool, and then turn around and set up our stuff. I, being a, like a one-and-a-half-year-old, would walk to the deep end of the pool, jump off the diving board, swim to where Rick was, and then Rob would jump in the pool and pull Rick off the bottom of the pool, and Rick would come up with water streaming out of his nose, and as soon as he was able to catch his breath, he would just be laughing hysterically. And everybody else at the campground was running around in horror trying to find out who the horrible parents were that let these three kids roam like crazy and throw this poor wheelchair-bound kid in the pool. The poor wheelchair-bound boy who was having the time of his life, I bet. Oh, absolutely, and would have it no other way. We told you about that house at the Cape. We had this house that was right on a, a finger lake, which came directly off the ocean. We used to take a canoe out, and the three of us would row out to the canoe. We would tip the canoe upside down, and then we would fit, go down, fish Rick out, put him over the side of the canoe, and then the three of us would kick it back in. The neighbors used to call my mother at work complaining, and saying, what are you, why are you letting them do that? And she'd be like, I'm at work. I have to, I have to go. Uh, <laughs> they're fine. Oh, man. So I think I heard you say that your dad had lots of brothers and sisters and your, your mom had two siblings. Did you get together with any cousins at all, other family members? Oh, all the time. You know, we used to play. One of the things that we used to do, we lived on this long street in North Reading, and we always used to play street hockey. So all of our cousins would come out and play and you know, Rick would either be the goalie or someone would grab him up out of his chair, put a stick in his hand, and he'd be flying down the street, chasing his cousins, hitting him with a stick, you know, just being a part of it, just like everybody else. He had, Rick did everything that we did, no matter what it was. You didn't give Rick any slashing penalties or anything like that? Hey, hey, it's all family. No penalties can be called when it's all family. <laughs> Speaking of hockey, I understand that your family are diehard Bruin fans. Yep. Yeah. Actually, Rick, when he got the very first computer that allowed him to communicate independently, it was called the Tick. It was a Tufts Interactive Communicator. And when that uh, machine got invented, there was bets. My mother was betting Rick's first words would be, hi, mom. My dad was betting it would be, hi, dad. You know, everybody had their thoughts. At the time, the Bruins were going for the Stanley Cup. So the first words that Rick ever independently typed were, go Bruins. <laughs> I love it. I used to be a big hockey fan way back when. And even though I'm from northern New Jersey, I'm not a Devils fan or a Rangers fan. I'm a Chicago Blackhawks fan. <laughs> but I remember the Bruin team back in the day and uh, Bobby Orr. And, yeah, Bill Esposito. <laughs> yeah. yeah, quite the team. So you had a lot of cousins and family members. Did all the other family members really treat Rick the same as just like you and your brother Rob did? As, yeah, as a matter of fact, I mean, if anybody had, you know, anybody to pick on, you know, they gave Rick as much gruff as they gave Rob and I when, you know, like I said, when we played hockey as cousins, we used to, uh, we also used to go up to North Conway and go cross country skiing. And I mean, Rick would get thrown in the sled and get towed through the snow just like um, anybody else our cousins always included him if there was a snowball fight rick was getting hit with a snowball just like everybody else <laughs> did you have holidays at your house or did you have any traditions that you used to follow as kids yeah so every summer my father throws a huge hoyt reunion bash and we would have 100 150 people in the yard and especially once he moved up to the lake it was something that everybody looked forward to every year. And this being our first year without him, 
Rick, Rob, and I have decided we're hosting. So on July 3rd, if you're listening, you might hear us because there's going to be quite the family bash that day. And we told everybody they better be there. Oh, I love it. I bet Rick and Rob are looking forward to it as well. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask Rick a question. I'd like to ask Rick, what led up to you asking your dad about participating in a race to help another young man? And can you expand on that? My gym teacher, Steve Sartori, was the men's head basketball coach at Westfield State College. One day after class, Mr. Sartori told me about a road race that would help raise money for a lacrosse player who had broken his neck. He said I should go home and ask my dad to push me in the five-mile road race. At that time, my wheelchair wasn't built for running. It had four small wheels and it was large and also very wide. It was like pushing a shopping cart. My dad was not a runner. He just jogged maybe a mile twice a week. The two biggest challenges of my racing career. So, yeah, Rick, even though you were always included in all the kinds of family antics and sports and all those things, this is about joining in a race, pretty big race for a good cause. It must have been a very exciting start of something that you and dad found very special together. Russ, what did you and your family think about that first event that Rick and your dad participated in? It was actually really cool for us, James. One of the things that had always been great about our families, we always supported each other in all of our endeavors. And Rob and I did a lot of athletics from a young age. We played little league and played soccer and peewee football and stuff. And Rick was always there supporting us. So this race actually gave us an opportunity to be able to go and cheer him on and be on the sidelines for an athletic endeavor that he participated in. It was really cool to be able to support him in a way he had always supported us. Oh, that's terrific. It sounds like your family was pretty competitive and this gave an opportunity for the whole family to support each other in a very competitive endeavor. That sounds great. It must've been a lot of fun. What do you remember about that day What do you remember about watching that first race that your dad and Rick were in? What I remember most is when we got home after the race, Rick got on that computer and he said, dad, when I'm racing, it feels like my disability disappears. And that was the moment when you could see it in my father's eyes that this was going to become something bigger. I don't think we ever thought it was going to become as big as what it was, but you knew that that was not the last time that they were going to run together and that something special was going to come out of it. Wow. Russ, how did your mom feel about these new developments? Uh, I think at first she was all in. It was another avenue. It was another way to show that Rick belonged right alongside everybody else, whether they had a disability or not. I think sometimes she would get concerned about Rick's physical ability to be able to endure sitting in the chair for a race and, you know, how he might eat and get the nutrition that he needs the day of the race. You know, I mean, she was worried about sunscreen. I mean, she was a mom, you know, she was worried about the things that moms worry about with their kids. Was she also worried about your dad's health? Cause he said he was running maybe a couple miles a week or something. This is now he's starting to train for something more. Was she concerned about your dad's health? I think she always thought that whatever was put in front of him, he was going to accomplish because just who he was. So I don't think she ever really worried about that. So 
you kind of knew that when this first event happened that it wasn't going to be the last. Uh, Russ, can you summarize some of the events that your dad and Rick competed in over the years? Yeah, so they have completed over 1,130 different events. Wow. And when you start to look at what all of those were, uh, they ran the Boston Marathon together 32 consecutive years. They completed seven Ironman distance triathlons. So the first ever was the Ironman Canada, and that got them going on that. Their ultimate victory in the Ironman was completing in 1989, completing the Ironman Triathlon Championship in Kona, Hawaii. That was just an absolutely amazing event. They have done the Falmouth Road Race 37 consecutive years together. And then, you know, there's many 5Ks. There are many triathlons. There was one summer where they completed a complete triathlon series that was put on here in the New England. So they completed one triathlon in every New England state. They also completed the Ironman Germany. They completed an Ironman in Japan and a smaller race in Japan and a smaller race in El Salvador. So, I mean, even traveling internationally and being able to complete races all over the world is part of that 1,130 plus event. That is so incredible to me. I have done a lot of 5Ks. I've done a lot of 10Ks. I did one half marathon with my wife. I thought to myself, when we finished that 13th mile, I couldn't fathom having another 13 miles to go. <laughs> and uh, we were just wiped out. I wanted to look up what exactly was involved in an Ironman triathlon that Rick and your dad participated in. And it tells me that it's a 2.4-mile swim a 112-mile bike ride, and a 26.2-mile run. Rick, that is amazing. Don't know how you guys did that. <laughs> it's crazy. The one in, in Hawaii, too, when you get out on that bike, the temperatures on the lava fields get up over 110 degrees. So, you know, you're, you're fighting wind and heat, and it's just a, it's an incredible environment to race in. Wow. So what really prompted your dad and Rick to continue to compete in these very challenging and strenuous activities? I can't imagine that it didn't require a whole ton of training on top of the actual events themselves. Yes. Yeah. And I think one of the things that happened is people decided that they were going to tell my father and tell Rick no. And that's one of the biggest mistakes you can make. Uh <laughs> Boston Marathon, the first time they said no, they ran as bandits, went down to the Marine Corps Marathon and actually ran a two hour and 40 minute marathon and then qualified for Boston under Rick's age, not my father's age. They qualified under Rick's age so that the next year they had to be admitted because they were qualified runners in the Boston Marathon. Then Dave McGilvery, who is the race director for the Boston Marathon, approached my father one year and he said, you know, I think you'd be a great triathlete. You should try it. And my father's response was, well, I got to be able to do it with Rick. And Dave was like, well, no, what, what do you mean? What, what do you mean? And then he asked my father again. And my father said, well, we got to figure out a way to do it with Rick. And Dave's like, oh, all right. And they, they did. They, they got a boat and they got a bike. And they just found a way to say, yes, we can. I mean, that's their motto. So you can't say no, because yes, we can is what you're getting back. No nose to the Hoyt family. That's it. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I love that. That is just such a, an incredible story. You know, I think about the training that's involved, and I think about the fact that for Boston, they had to qualify under Rick's age. And how old was Rick when they had to qualify? He was 18, 20. Yeah, 20. He was 20 years old at the time. Oh, my goodness. So the standards or the qualification time must have been extremely aggressive. Yeah, I, I want to say it was something like it was under three hours. And they that's when they went down to the Marine Corps Marathon in Washington, D.C. and ran the 240. So they were well under what they needed to be. And it's a time where, I mean, even today where races are getting faster. If you look at a 240 marathon and think about the people who were able to do that, that's, that's quite a run. That really is. And Rick, I want to tell you that my half marathon time was two hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> so you and your dad finished a marathon in less time than it took me to finish a half. <laughs> Congratulations on that. So Russ, how did you and other family members participate in or support these events? Well, you know, it was a total struggle having to go to Hawaii six times. That was just, you know, it was a real struggle. <laughs> Poor guy. What a terrible <laughs> affliction. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, you know, I, I had to celebrate my 21st birthday in Hawaii and my 50th birthday in Hawaii. So it's, it's, it's a definite suffer uh, in my life. Uh, <laughs> we've been able to be the support crew. We're able to, you know, help get the boat to the water, make sure it's pumped up. We're able to um, make sure that the bike is in the right spot in the transitions and hold the bike while dad transfers Rick from the boat to the bike, gets himself set, takes off on the bike, be there to hold the bike while the running chair is set up and move on. So basically trying to be the support crew for an event like the Ironman in Hawaii, you know, we're out there for weeks. So we would stay in a condo and we would take turns preparing the meals and making sure that everything was taken care of that, that needed to be so that they could be ready to, to perform. Rick, did you ever preside over any luau's or anything like that? Oh yeah, quite a few. <laughs> He's got a big smile on his face, so I know he did. And Russ, I know you were very athletic. You said you used to wrestle, right? Yes, yep. I wrestled in high school and got a college scholarship, so I was able to uh, wrestle both in high school and college. And Rick was actually one of my biggest cheerleaders. And there's a, a little bit of a funny story. When I was in high school in Westfield. Our coach had a very tight relationship with another coach in upstate New York. So we would alternate years. And my junior year, we went to New York and wrestled. And the way the gym was set up, the bleachers were on one side, but we couldn't get Rick's wheelchair up. So Rick was actually sitting behind our bench. We couldn't see him because we're faced the mat. So the crowd's looking. Rick got so excited during my match, he actually hit himself in the face and was bleeding from his nose. And we're all sitting on the bench, and we didn't know what was going on behind us. And people in the crowd are standing up and screaming. They're like, he's bleeding. He's bleeding. And people are looking at the mat going, there's nobody bleeding. Both wrestlers are fine. What are you? So we finally realized that Rick had gotten so excited, he had hit himself in the nose and oh, was bleeding all over his shirt. So when Rick cheers, he cheers hard. Yeah, they're thinking these New England boys are tough. They're making mincemeat out of the New York boys, right? <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So, Russ, did you run in any of these uh, Ironmans or anything like that? Did you ever throw your hat in the ring? Uh, when I was 18, I decided that I was going to compete in a triathlon against my father and Rick. 
at the time, you know, being 18 training to me was not something that I needed. I was 18. I was invincible. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I had been a competitive swimmer earlier. The way the triathlons were set up because of my father and Rick being in the boat, they would get a 15 minute head start and then the rest of the wave would start. So when I came out of the water, they told me I was only five minutes behind. So I had made up 10 minutes on the swim. And this particular race happened to be in Fairley, Vermont. And the race, you went about a half mile out and the second mile was a hill that just went straight up. And I caught them on the hill. And as we're going by, I said to my father and Rick, I said, I said, I'll see you at the finish line, guys. I'll be sitting under a tree, drinking a beer, waiting for you to finish. I finished the bike, got off the bike, and I was informed that I had about a 30-minute lead on them. And the run that day was a 5.7-mile run. I got off the bike and realized training has a reason. I could not move my legs. My legs were just shot. So I just started to shuffle along and, you know, finally got enough of my muscles loose to actually break into a slight slow jog. Uh, I got to the five mile mark and, and had the worst thing in the world I could have done. Thought to myself, I've got this. No way they're going to catch me now. The next thing I hear is <laughs> it's the wheels on Rick's chair spinning as my father goes flying past me. And I hear, got to win it with your legs, son. So uh, when I finally sh shuffle to the finish line, I look over and there's Rick's wheelchair next to a tree. And my father's sitting next to, leaned up against the tree, drinking a beer. And here I am, son, sitting under a tree, drinking a beer, waiting for you to finish. Oh, <laughs> uh, so actually, so you're underneath the, you're underneath the tree, taking it easy, Rick. Did you happen to wave to your brother as you passed him? Uh, he didn't wave. No, he laughed. He laughed as loud as I've ever heard him laugh in my life as they went by. He was enjoying that to the nth degree. So in being the competitive family that we are, the next year I trained and we ran that same race again and I beat them by one second. Yes. And then I retired from racing forever with a 500 record. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that, uh, Rick was enjoying that victory of his uh, again on the call right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I would imagine you'd have to carry a lot of water in those types of races to keep hydrated. So at the time when like the Ironman, especially what my father would do, the bike he had designed actually has Rick sitting in front of him. So my father could actually reach around to the front of the bike with a water bottle and squirt water into Rick's mouth during the race to keep him hydrated so that was uh one of the things that would happen and especially the bike because that 112 mile bike i mean that that took hours and that was the difficult part of the race um for them to be able to to take care of rick both getting some nutrition and staying hydrated definitely a lot of conditioning involved there yeah so rick i want to ask you another question can you tell us about a few memories about the most challenging and exciting times during the time you and your dad were competing? The two biggest challenges of my racing career happened in Boston and Hawaii. In Boston in 2013, when the bombs went off, my dad and I were still on the course and we were told we had to stop. When they told us why, I was scared because I knew that my brother, Russ, his wife, Lisa, and his sons, Troy and Ryan, were waiting at the finish line for us. Later, when I heard they were okay, I felt like I could breathe again. In Hawaii in 2003, my dad and I had a great swim, and we were flying on the bike, and then it happened. We crashed. The bike swerved and then flipped, and my dad went down hard. 
An ambulance took us to a hospital on some faraway part of the island I had never been to. At the hospital they took my dad away to examine him and then the doctors were examining me and because I couldn't talk, they x-rayed every part of my body, even my toes. I was scared because I thought dad was hurt and they wouldn't let me see him. When Rob and Russ arrived, I spelled to Russ, is dad okay? Just then dad walked in the room covered by bandages and said, I'm fine, do you think we can still finish? We all left and then I knew we were both okay. My two best memories of my racing career are also from Boston and Hawaii. In Boston, my best memory is of the crowds along the course during the 1993 Boston Marathon. It was a few weeks before my graduation from Boston University. All the way from Hopkinton to Boston, the crowds had signs that read, Congratulations on your graduation. Or they were yelling congratulations as we ran by. In Hawaii, when Dad and I completed the Ironman triathlon, it was amazing. It was almost midnight and the crowds at the finish line were so packed with people I couldn't believe it. The crowd was roaring, and Dad and I felt like we were flying as we passed other runners trying to finish. Then my mother and brothers were there spraying us with champagne. It was great. Wow, those are great stories, but I got to say that you must have been terrified both with the bombings that took place at Boston. I remember when that happened, such a terrifying event. And uh, to think that you guys were in that race and then the crash, I mean, here you, <laughs> here you both end up in the hospital and your father wants to make sure he's going to finish the race. <laughs> Boy, what that stick That is strength of character and purpose. That is just tremendous. I, I've had a little bit of a shin splint and I'd call it quits, you know, <laughs> those are really amazing events. And I think about the champagne being sprayed on you and just the excitement of coming across those finish lines for those incredibly difficult events that must've, must've really tried you, Rick. It must've really a tough situation to muscle through those runs and, to be in the middle of the thick of all those people and competing with your dad, all of those races must have been a really wonderful experience for not only you and your dad, but for your brothers and your mom and for all the people out there who draw such inspiration from you and your dad. We've actually had people reach out to the family and tell us that it actually, that we've had people tell us that they feel like it has saved their lives. People who were on the couch had given up on trying to do anything fitness-wise, given up trying to do anything to help themselves because they couldn't find motivation. And then when they saw my father and Rick out there, they said, I, I got up off the couch and I started to do things to make myself get stronger and be better and eat right and find ways to become physically fit. And, you know, so people have told us stories that, you know, it's just humbling to hear that. I can only imagine that the reward of knowing that you're helping so many people and encouraging so many people who either have disabilities or maybe they've lost a zest for life, that maybe they're like, I'm depressed or I'm sad or, or I just don't have the time or I'm getting too old or, or whatever. People can say, you know, I'm, I'm just not up to it. I don't think I could do it. You know, my better days are over. Or, 
things like that. And here they see this tremendous determination uh, along with a lot of hard work because you had to be ready for those races. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that some people don't realize too is the physical toll that it actually takes on Rick's body to participate in these races. He's not just sitting in a chair. I mean, his body fights himself all the time. And, you know, he constantly has spasms and, you know, other things that happen to his body during the race that he has to, you know, deal with and address um, to be able to successfully get through the race himself. Yes. I did want to ask, maybe, maybe Russ, you could answer this question is during the races, not every course is straightforward. There's turns and hills and all those things. Did it require Rick to shift body weight, going around corners and keeping balance and things like that? Was he required to participate in that way? And I imagine it would be very strenuous if he did. Yeah, it was more like the bike was very difficult. And that was something where maintaining balance and Rick would actually try not to move a lot because he could throw, you know, them out of balance. Luckily for them in the racing chair, it was okay. Cause if you watched any of those YouTube videos, when they're running, Rick's arms are going and he's pumping and just giving my father the motivation that he needs. And it was more, you know, dealing with the elements could be difficult for Rick too. the wind. I mean, the, design of having Rick on the front of the bike was so that my father could really maintain that balance and be able to give him water. But that meant that Rick was the one breaking the wind. That's a tough spot to be in for a number of hours, being out there and having that wind push you and fight you the entire race. I would imagine, you know, I think about Hawaii, I think about the sun and uh, any of the other races as well, that there must've been the need for lathering up with lotion and stuff like that. So you didn't end up with chapped lips or your face sunburned or what have you. It's a, it's a long time to be out in, in the elements. Yeah. So one year at the Ironman, we had bought Rick Bullfrog, which is the, the type of sunscreen it is. You put it on thick and you just leave it and it protects you. But my mom was the one who got a hold of it and she didn't know how Bullfrog worked. So she put it all over Rick's face and tried to rub it in as you would regular sunscreen. So we do have some pictures where Rick has these green globs all around his face during the race because mom tried to do her best to put bullfrog and keep her son protected and didn't realize how the product actually worked. <laughs> I can only imagine what that looks. Oh, I'd love to see a photograph of that if you can send it to me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we have one of those. We'll have to look. <laughs> Russ, I want to ask you, how did having Dick and Judy Hoyt as your dad and mom impact your life? I'm going to ask both of you this question, but I'm going to start with you, Russ. Sure. I'll start with a funny story. Uh, so my dad being in the military was 15 minutes early for everything. My mom being in human services was 15 minutes late for everything. So I've become chronically on time for everything in my life because of the two of them. Uh, so I think what I got from my dad was really disciplined. The part where he's in the military and taking care of yourself. I mean, I try and work out seriously three times a week and do a little something to keep your health every day. I try to pay attention to my diet, like that type of just focus and discipline to be a, a strong and healthy person is something I learned. And from my mom, it, it was all about the passion. I mean, my 
career. I was the uh, statewide autism specialist for the state of Massachusetts for three and a half years. I worked in, you know, early intervention and then eventually ended up for over 20 years running an integrated preschool for public schools in Massachusetts where half the students had disabilities and half the students were typically developing. So that passion for inclusion that came from my parents um, and especially from my mom really drove me for what I did in my professional life. Just lessons that you learn from watching them helped me become the professional that I was. Russ, can you tell us a little bit more why inclusion is so important for people with some degree of disability? Because one of the things my parents were told when Rick was born, the doctor said to my mother and father, they said, put him away, put him in an institution. He's going to be nothing but a vegetable, have other kids and move on. That was what people thought. And my parents said, no, no, Rick comes home, Rick lives with us. And then, you know, when we had other children, Rick does what they do. And being able to be a part of everything that you do in life is, is what inclusion means. I mean, just because you have a disability, you shouldn't lose an opportunity. You should have every opportunity that, that everyone else around you does. I mean, we look at some of the challenges that we are experiencing in the world today and, and some of the prejudice that we experience, and it's, it just makes you dizzy trying to figure out why people think other people can't be included. It's wrong. Everybody needs to be able to do what they're passionate about. Absolutely. Everybody has their own individual, unique gifts and talents and personalities and you know, I think about what your parents were told when Rick was first born. And here, here's Rick. He's a, he's a rock star. He's, a, he's an athlete. This guy's amazing. He's an inspiration for so many people who may be saying, hey, I, I can't do that. And here he is. He's, he's done it. <laughs> yeah. And you have did everything so well except for the, the suntan lotion thing, Rick. That, that didn't go so well. <laughs> wow. So let me ask Rick. Rick, how did having Dick and Judy Hoyt as your mom and dad impact your life? A few lessons that dad and mom taught me are one, dream very big. Two, set large goals. Three, work like hell to reach them. Four, Write letters to important people and friends. Five, kindness is better than meanness. For example, a friendly letter works much better than a nasty letter. Six, be grateful to people who help you. Seven, make time to thank people. Eight, keep positive. Nine, think good thoughts. Ten, be happy always. Rick, that is an amazing response to my question about having Dick and Judy Hoyt as your mom and dad. Uh, wow. I mean, just uh, th there's so much that so many of us can learn from what you just told us about your mom and dad and what they taught you. I think so many people listening to this podcast right now could jot some of those things down and say, hey, these are the things that are important in life. I know that one of the things that you know stood out was kindness is so much better than nastiness, that when we get nasty and we got to say something nasty because we feel bad and we want somebody else to feel bad, 
that may feel good for a, a minute or two, but boy, it's, uh, it's actually poison to your system and showing kindness is so important as, as is hard work. I heard hard work in there stand out as well. And certainly the Hoyt family is all about hard work and inclusion and love. And that's what it sounds like to me when I hear both of you talk about your mom and dad, and they, they really must've been amazing people. And I wish I had had the opportunity to meet both of them. Thank you. I appreciate, appreciate that thought. Yeah, you're welcome. So Russ, what do you want the Hoyt family legacy to be? I think, you know, we talked about our passion for inclusion. We want to be able to continue to promote and strengthen inclusion throughout people's lives. We want our family to demonstrate, you know, what that looks like. You know, Rick wants to be able to continue on a smaller scale to be able to do some races. And I have a son who's an avid runner and he and Rick have done some races together. That's something that we would love to see you know, grow on a scale that works for Rick in his life right now. And when they run, they want to run alongside people, whether they're in a wheelchair or, or runners who aren't in a wheelchair. It's being included in a race just like everybody else. That's the, the type of thing that they want to do. And we'd like to see the work that my parents did come back together. My father and Rick's racing has really made their sort of fame and how they're known around the world grow. And my mom's early work got lost a little bit, and we want to bring that back. So we want to show through the Hoyt Foundation that inclusion is something that is important, and we want to be able to support individuals with disabilities to be included in any aspect mm -hmm. of their life, and we want to provide support to help them do that. That's terrific. And I'm so glad we were able to talk more about your mom and what she did and what she accomplished. Because obviously with Rick and, and your dad running in these races and wowing people all over the place, it's really a positive statement. But there's your mom sort of working behind the scenes. And, and I just think it's so important that her story is being told here and her legacy is included in the Hoyt Foundation and what it stands for. So, yes. Rick, I'd like to ask you, what do you want the Hoyt family legacy to be? I want people to remember that my father and my mother made sure that I was always included. My parents worked tirelessly to ensure that I got to do everything that my brothers Rob and Russ got to do. In fact, Russ is working to develop a grant in their honor. I love my family. I am very proud of all my nephews, Jamie, Cam, Troy, and Ryan. This year, Troy will run the Boston Marathon in honor of his grandfather. James, thank you. Well, thank you very much for that, Rick. I really appreciate that. What a tremendous legacy that, uh, that your family has. And I'd like to ask you, Russ, can you elaborate a little bit more about the Hoyt Family Foundation and what is it doing today and how can people find out more about it? How can people contribute? How can people learn more about it? People can go to teamhoyt.com. If you Google it, you can find it pretty easily and you can look and there's a lot there about Team Hoyt, about their racing history that you could learn. And then there's also a page dedicated to the Hoyt Foundation itself. 
and it describes that our mission has has always been to promote inclusion for young people with disabilities in all aspects of their daily life, whether it be athletics or music or being able to be a part of their community. Those are the goals of the foundation. So the foundation routinely gives money to local charities. We have a local Easter sales chapter. We have a place called the Center of Hope. We have another agency called Venture, and they all provide opportunities for individuals with disabilities to gain the skills that they need to participate in life alongside their non-disabled peers. So we will continue to support those agencies and continue to grow those efforts locally in the, in the central part of Massachusetts where we live. But we're also going to expand that effort, and we're actually going to create the Dick and Trudy Hoyt Inclusion Grant. And that grant is actually going to provide money to individuals to provide them whatever it is that they would need to be better included. So if it were an athlete and say it was someone who needed a leg with a ski on it that would allow them to participate as part of the ski team, or if it was some type of a specialized instrument so that they could be a part of the school band, or if it was a van that would allow them to join the chess club because everybody else can just hop in a car and they happen to need a van with a lift. Whatever it would be that would allow an individual to be included alongside their non-disabled peers, that's going to be the goal of that grant. And that's going to be sort of the next evolution of the Hoyt Foundation. I think it's terrific. I am just amazed at the work that your family has done over the years. And how long has the foundation been in place? Actually, since 1989, the year after the completion of the Iron Man by my father and Rick was the year that the foundation came to be. That's amazing. I, I just hope that our listeners can check out your website to learn more about Team Hoyt and your foundation and the amazing work that you're all doing. I think it's just so, so vital. You know, to be honest with you, you've inspired me to dust off my sneakers and get back out and start running again. I'll tell you, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'll be 63 in July and I start thinking to myself, oh, you know, it's too late. I, I'm going to get injured or I'm going to fall over a curb or something like that. And, and I'm, I'm so inspired by your family's legacy. I'm looking forward to find out uh, what Troy's time is in the Boston Marathon. Yeah, we're not sure what to expect because it's going to be his first one. So mm-hmm. the fact that he's actually going to run to honor Granda, as he calls him, we're excited about that too. Now tell me this, who's going to be training him, you or Rick? <laughs> we're both going to be motivating him to get trained. He's actually going to get some training advice from some people that know what they're doing. So he's actually talking with Uta Pippig. She's been sending him some schedule and he's actually been able to talk to Dave McGilvery, who's an amazing runner in addition to being the organizer of the marathon. And he's gotten some support from both his high school and his college coach. So I think he's well-schooled. So Rick and I, instead of coaching him, we're just going to motivate him. We're going to scare him to run faster. I love it. Rick, I want to ask you, do you have any plans to continue to race? And if so, with whom? Unfortunately, my recent battles with pneumonia have made it so I cannot endure longer races anymore. So I will not run the Boston Marathon anymore. However, I will run shorter races like 5Ks. When I run, my nephew Troy will push me. I want to encourage anyone who wants to be a part of Team Hoyt to consider running for our charity team. 
reach out to us at teamhoyt73 at gmail.com and we will get the information to you. James, thank you for having us be a part of your podcast. I'm the one who should be thanking you because this has been a wonderful story. I appreciate both of you taking the time. And I know it's only been a few months since your dad passed. And I know it must be a, a very difficult time, but his legacy, your mom's legacy is being kept alive and is flourishing. It's thriving. I'm going to be getting on that website and check out to see how I can, how I can help out and how I could join Team Hoyt because you guys are just amazing and uh, your family is. So thank you both again for your time. I hope we can stay in touch. And uh, I look forward to seeing what other fantastic things are going on in your family and with your foundation. Thanks, James. We would enjoy keeping in touch as well. It was great talking with you today. Okay, guys, have a great evening. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.